My name's Nick Enfield. I am with the Sydney Centre for Language Research and I'm talking today to Alex Gray, who is a research fellow at the Law School at the University of Sydney and is a member of the Sydney Centre for Language Research and also a member of the China Centre at the University of Sydney. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Nick. So you're in law at Sydney and this is in a way is an example of the Sydney Centre for Language Research expanding its scope beyond just you know, the linguists that work in the Faculty of Arts. There's plenty of linguistic work going on around the, the university. So um, it's great to be able to talk to you about your work based as you are in the law school. So I wondered if we could just start by you telling us about how it is that you work on language and law in, in the context of the law school. Sure. Look, it is a little bit unusual, but you might be surprised that I'm not the only person who works on language in a law school, either here or at other universities. So the reason I'm in law is because originally I was a lawyer. I taught law. I've taught law for 10 years now. But along the way, I've always been a great lover of languages, studying languages and doing a Master's of Applied Linguistics. And during the time I was doing that Master's, I moved to China and I became really fascinated not just with the diversity of languages within China, but also with how the government there manages that linguistic diversity. And I thought, aha, here is the perfect question for me to do a PhD on, drawing on my law and my linguistic background. So I did my PhD in sociolinguistics, looking at language governance of minority languages in China. And then I returned uh, after the fieldwork to write it up here in Australia at Macquarie University. I went back to China to do a bit of further work and then I landed the position here in the law school. At the time, they were specifically looking for people doing what we call socio-legal work or interdisciplinary legal work. And I proposed to them the topic that I've now been researching for a couple of years that we're going to talk about today, which is how federal, state and local governments in Australia regulate public language and in particular regulate their own choice of language when they as governments communicate with our linguistically diverse population. Right, so law and language, of course, around the world, there are very many different versions of the situation in Australia, the situation in China. Um, there are indigenous languages, there are languages of, you know, essentially descendants of colonial incomers, there are languages of new uh, migrant populations, the, the kind of levels are, are, are very many and I'm sure of course the levels of government are very many and the versions of, of legal organisation around language must be very many. Um, so we're not going to review all of those options today although it might be interesting to compare some of them but perhaps you could start by telling us about the situation with Australian laws and how Australian law in particular governs the choice of languages for communications. We, we, we speak English in formal communications in uh, Australia, in Parliament, in the mainstream media, etc. But of course many other languages are, are used. So can you, can you start by telling us about the kind of Australian law situation around governing language choice? 
Sure. Look, I think the very first place to start is to clarify that Australia doesn't have an official language. As you say, of course, English is used in mainstream media, it's used most of the time in Parliament. Increasingly, we are seeing little bits of Indigenous languages used in Australian federal and state parliaments, not just in a symbolic way, but actually on the floor of the chamber. And there's a researcher down at Melbourne Law School doing his doctorate on that. His name is Julian Murphy. But in general in Australia, although we have a very linguistically diverse population, 22% of Australian households report speaking a language other than English in our last census, and that diversity includes, as you said, many migrant languages, but also Indigenous languages. Despite that, the law, or if you like, the state, doesn't really get involved in language choice very much in Australia. And this is perhaps akin to other uh, similar nations, other democracies around the world, although some of them are more engaged in, if you like, language governance. Uh, it's a little bit different from China, which, as I mentioned, is where I did my doctorate, where the state is more involved in the regulation of language. And so when I began my current project, I began by doing an audit of what laws there are about choice of language in Australia. And what I found was that at the federal level, there are a small number. I can take you through the kind of tendencies in those in a second. Yeah. At the state level, there's even fewer although there is just very recently some unusual case law from the New South Wales Supreme Court, uh, unusual in that it's a case specifically about what it means to speak English and about a regulation on only speaking English if you're an extreme high-risk restricted inmate, so there's a high-security prisoner in a New South Wales prison. So that's a very uh, atypical case because it deals directly with the issue of language regulation and upholds. Uh, a regulation about choice of language in a specific um, public context, that is, inside prisons. And then what I found in the research is at the local level, so in Australia below the state government, we have um, a devolved level of power called local governance. So a local council is also a lawmaking body. Some local governments also make regulations that apply just within that you know, group of suburbs about for instance, whether public signage can be in a foreign language, whether public signage has to be in English and a foreign language or only in English. So we were talking a few years ago at uh, a conference here at Sydney about the case of Strathfield, a suburb and a council in Sydney where that local council has used its rulemaking power to mandate that public signage on shops must include English. So that's a good example of the very specific regulation of language choice. But as I said... That sort of specific regulation is not common at any okay. jurisdictional level. So maybe we could just talk about some of those cases um, at, at a little bit more length. You know, maybe mm. maybe let's just say we're working backwards. Um, so with the Strathfield case, um, you know, maybe you can just tell us more about what exactly the Strathfield Council did or tried to do, and and and, and what the outcome of that was, what the situation is now. Yes. So I watched these uh, meetings because the, if you like, the, the lawmaking or rulemaking debates at a local council are public meetings. What happened was that there was some concern in the Strathfield area that particularly the languages Mandarin and Korean, which are widely used amongst the populace in that area, were being shown on shop fronts, so written, 
in all sorts of signage on restaurants, grocery stores, you know, small retailers. And somebody raised the concern to their local councillor, who then raised it in the council chambers, that this was both messy, so it was an aesthetic issue in the streetscape of Strathfield Council, and that it was causing problems because people didn't know what those shops were offering. Now, I myself raise my eyebrows. You can tell that a Korean restaurant is a Korean restaurant from the look of the food and by the tables and the people sitting there eating. You can tell that a grocery shop is a grocery shop because there's, you know, bananas out the front with a price tag on them. It's not necessarily impossible, but it speaks to the fact that people feel excluded when the cues, the visual cues they get from what we call the linguistic landscape or the the physical embodiment of language around them seems to shut them out. And of course, in this Strathfield case, the people feeling that were English speakers, but this is something that comes up in a lot of sociolinguistic research that, say, minority language speakers or Indigenous language speakers also feel shut out when the linguistic landscape doesn't, if you like, speak to them in their languages. So what happened in Strathfield was a, a little bit of back and forth discussion. I have to say there wasn't much debate over this particular aspect. The debate seemed to be caught up more in also whether roller doors were messy and affronting the streetscape. At the local level, of course, rulemaking is, you know, very local issues. And so this was passed. I have to say, though, the, a local council also has staff, not elected officials, but employees who do the bureaucratic management. And they prepared a report recommending that this rule not be passed. But nevertheless, the councillors, not unanimously, but uh, in the majority voted to impose this rule. However... That was in 2018. So sorry, um, mm. just to clarify, mm. when you said this rule, so oh, um, yes. what was the rule that they... Sure, good detail, Nick. Yeah. So the rule that they decided upon, what they wanted to do was to mandate that all signage had to include English. It could include another language, but it had to include English. And then they went back and forth as to what proportion of the signage in very numerical terms. Should it be 75% English? Should it be 50%? So they would come with their measuring tapes and, and uh, sort of measure out the area, the presumably, yeah. Presumably, but as a linguist, you can think, well, okay, is a loan word part of your 50% English or 50% right. other language? Or, you know, how is this going to work in practice? And I have to say, I don't know whether it has worked in practice at all because this year, 2020, when I went back to Strathfield to do some other field work to do with my coronavirus communications project, I found that a lot of the restaurant signage was as it had ever been. So I don't really know if this rule has yet been forcefully implemented. Right. So, um, but very interesting that it was passed. Uh, mm. I recall at the time that there were submissions being invited and that, um, uh, you know, that I was actually involved in putting a submission together. So we, we were somewhat curious about how it um, played out. So we could, perhaps we can go out to Strathfield with our uh, measuring tapes and figure out figure out what's going on out there. So that, that's fascinating that at that lower level um, you have people making it their business to actually pass legal restrictions on, on language in ways that, as you pointed out, are very, uh, well, they're quite political in a very obvious kind of a way. Um, but, it, but as you also pointed out, 
it's understandable from a person, citizen's point of view that, that um, exclusion is, is, a, is a problem there, maybe, maybe for practical purposes, I don't know. Um, if we can go back now to that case that you raised at the state level, yes. so this New South Wales state government case, um, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear more um, about that case to do with prisons and, and the language being used. So can you fill us in on what happened there, um, what the case was and, and what's been the legal consequences? Sure. So this case is called Hamsey and the Commissioner of Corrective, uh, Corrective Services, so that is the, the state bureaucrat in charge of prisons, uh, is the defendant in this case. If people want to see the the details of the case, I've written about it on a blog called the Australian Public Law Blog, which is ozpublaw.org. So you can see the full citation there. But it's a case that was handed down by Justice Bellew in April this year. And what was at stake here was the, um, the alleged or asserted right of a particular high security inmate at a New South Wales prison to use the language of his choice when speaking to his visitors, when speaking to his lawyer, when writing letters, when talking on the phone. In this case, the plaintiff, Mr Hamsey, is bilingual in Arabic and English. But since 2015, there's been a rule made by um, the Office of Corrective Services, or um, it's called delegated legislation. So the parliament has allowed that part of the executive to make rules about prisons. These rules about prisons mandate that communications for this sort of prisoner only be in English unless some other language is approved, but no other languages have been approved. So what that means for Mr Hamsey is that when speaking to his family, his lawyer, when writing letters, etc., he can only use English. Now, the issue is not that he can't use English, though of course this would be very problematic for people, for instance, who have Auslan as their first language, people who have an Indigenous language as their first language, people who can't speak English because their first language is what we count in Australia as a migrant language. So this consequence could be very dramatic for a number of different prisoners, but in Mr Hamsey's specific case, what affronted him was not necessarily that he couldn't completely communicate but that because he can use English, but that the people he was corresponding with couldn't necessarily use English as strongly. Right. For instance, his parents. Of course. And more than that, he was affronted that he wasn't allowed to choose. So it's for him an issue of his right to a freedom of expression. And he invoked international law of freedom of expression. And he also alleged that this was a racially motivated or racially enacted regulation because choosing only to allow English to be spoken is, if you like, a form of discrimination along ratio-linguistic lines. So can I just check um, here? So, I mean, I can imagine that, for example, this man has been singled out. Uh, I can imagine that a lot of people who are in prison can use another language and nobody really minds. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but, but it would seem to me surprising that suddenly all of the people who speak languages other than English are, are banned from, from using them in letters and, and conversations with their families. Is it, and if it's the case that he has been singled out, um, you know, it may presumably be relevant what he's in jail for. 
he's not singled out as an individual, but the small group of people who are high risk or what we call extreme high risk restricted inmates, they are the only people who, um, who are under what we might call this language ban. I see. So this singles out people who are classified in a particular way. It's a group of prisoners. We don't have public data on which languages this group of prisoners speak, but we do have public records from the time this regulation is passed from parliamentarians commenting that the main purpose of this was to stop prisoners using Arabic because some of these high-risk prisoners are in jail for terrorism-related offences or suspected of uh, organised crime or, in fact, convicted of organised crime. And so the idea was that to surveil them more effectively in prison, they should only use English because it's then much easier for the prison staff to monitor their communications. It's interesting that those... I didn't know those facts, but, you know, if you had asked me to guess, that's what I would have guessed. Yes, and this... I don't know if that's good or bad, but it it shows that we are aware that there is this real suspicion of non-English speaking in Australia. And that has a long-standing record well before the current, mm, if you like, current suspicion of Arabic. Now, Mr Hamzi himself is in jail for incredibly serious offences. Murder, offences committed while in jail. I'm not at all suggesting that he's a lovely person who should simply get what he wants. But the right to freedom of expression is a really important right to preserve for any individual And it's also really unusual in the Australian context to have it litigated in this way so that we can actually hear the court's view and get a binding precedent, at least within the New South Wales jurisdiction, as to how this right relates to this sort of language ban. So it's a really important case, even if we don't like Hamzy. Yeah, it's a fascinating case. It reminds me, and I wonder if this has come up in the discussions about this particular case. So you talked about freedom of expression, Mm. uh, which is fascinating from my point of view because, you know, if you think linguistically, uh, one view of language is, well, it doesn't matter if I'm speaking English or I'm speaking Arabic, I can express the same ideas. You know, this, this would be one view of language that it's just a kind of a, an interface. You can swap one in and, and swap mm. another one in. And, you know, to some extent that's true. I can get you to pass the water whether I'm speaking Arabic or English. Um, so if you wanted to make a case that freedom of expression was at, at issue... Uh, what kind of arguments did he put forward there? Was he t- was he invoking cultural expression? Was he invoking the possibility that, as many people would want to say, there are words that can't be translated from Arabic into English or vice versa? W- what kinds of defences were being put forward in, in favour of this? It's a great question, Nick. He particularly was focusing on words that couldn't be translated and words with a religious connotation, so particularly... Quranic verses or idiomatic expressions um, and idiomatic expressions that had a religious basis. But also the more general argument that it wasn't so much that he could swap in a language and express his point of view, but that the recipient, so particularly his parents, wouldn't necessarily understand if he swapped into English. He's a comfortable English speaker, but this comes back to the other view of language which is that the meaning is co-constructed between both the the speaker and the receiver. So if the listeners can imagine Nick and I are sitting here face-to-face in a small room, he can see my facial expressions, my body language, we both speak English as our dominant language. Nick understands 
pretty well what I'm saying and his questions feed back over that and we co-construct this dialogue as we go along. If I was speaking a language that I was less comfortable with or that I was speaking poorly and Nick didn't quite understand where I was coming from or how I was using it, it would obviously be much harder to do this interview. And that's the point that I found really problematic with this judgment, that of course expression from a linguistic point of view involves both the speaker and the interlocutor, the person listening. And so just because the speaker can use a particular language doesn't necessarily mean that they can fully express what they want to express if the receiver doesn't also have that full command of that language. All right, that's a really interesting point about the kind of collaborative... <coughs> excuse me, the collaborative nature of language. Um, do you think there's a relation here between a further kind of aspect of law around kind of not allowing you to say certain things and that's not so much freedom of expression but this concept of compelled speech uh so you know you no doubt aware of the arguments in canada around uh, the legality of using pronouns that have been officially sanctioned people uh, ask you to use a certain pronoun to refer to them then you're legally bound now to use those pronouns and there were complaints about this being a case of compelling speech right there it's not only sort of uh, saying i cannot use pronoun mm. x but that i'm compelled to use pro pronoun y in this case um with the choice between arabic and um and english perhaps there's, there's a there's a kind of a corollary of uh you know not allowing me to use Arabic is, you know, forcing me to use English, and so there's a sense of com compelled, compelled speech there. Was that also part of the, the uh, this this debate? It's a smart argument, and I wish it had been for the sake of how the case uh, might have been more fully elaborated. But no, that issue of compelled speech didn't come up at all. And look, to clarify, Mr. Hamdi lost this case, so some of these things that are missing from the argumentation might have changed the outcome. Look, they might not have because the other determining factor here is that based on um, non-binding but uh, influential international case law, the New South Wales Supreme Court decided that at least in a prison, the state had the overweening interest in deciding what languages people speak. So even if it was compulsion, even if it was reducing his freedom of expression, it was a lawful or allowable restriction on that freedom of expression. He is, after all, in a maximum security jail, so he can't very well say that his behaviour shouldn't be um, compelled in some sense. He's clearly already um, under fit of quite serious compulsion. Um, that's a fascinating case, and uh, you know, I, I very much look forward to going looking at your... Um, blog post about it so that's a, a, a state level issue and that's a New South Wales state uh, legal uh, case just now coming back to where we started um, before the the federal level and, and you know you pointed out that Australia doesn't have a official an official language now I work in Laos as you know and and in the history of that country you know, there was a there was a de there are declarations at different times. One point by the king, 
at one point in a new constitution of the current government that specifically states, you know, it's just one line in the constitution, but there it is, and it says, you know, um, in Laos, Lao will be the language used. And so therefore that, you know, puts legal force on language in, in education and media and government communications and so forth. How is it that Australia doesn't have that? Is that unusual? So I take it from what you said, you know, Australia has no official language, that that simply means there's no line in the constitution or no line in federal law that says anything like that. So is that is that unusual? And uh, first, is it unusual? And second, you know, how do we get along without that? It's, it is relatively unusual. However, I think we can understand this kind of legal absence in context and then it doesn't seem so unusual in a colonial historic view. So in your Lao example or in other examples where nations constitutionally assert what is the language or multiple languages that they will use for governing purposes that they use as the emblem of their nation, etc., we have to think, well, why are they, if you like, co-opting or investing the symbolic power of law in that assertion? What is it speaking against? Typically, it's speaking against a history where that language or those languages did not have social status, were not able to be used for governing or official purposes. And so it's, it's a strong assertion of a change from history. In the Australian context... Although we have a very long history, as we know, of Indigenous languages being spoken, when our constitution was written in the late 19th century and then enacted in 1901, we were already by then in a context where English was widely spoken by the people who were powerful. And so in that context, they don't have that need to assert something against history with the force of law. They don't need to strongly say, now we speak English as a nation. Is it like no one thought of it? Hmm. That's a question that I would have to go back to the constitutional debates to see. Did they think of it and decide not to put it in or did they just assume it because they and the other important people they knew spoke English and because that's what they just assumed would be the future of the nation. They saw that as a good thing. They didn't really see the need to put it in the constitution. Of course, at around that time, we did have other laws and regulatory practices that really clamped down on the speaking of Indigenous languages and also Irish Gaelic um, prior to Federation. And so there was a state suppression of linguistic diversity. It's not that it wasn't thought about at all, but it wasn't necessarily seen as important to assert in that constitutional, official way. Mm. So I'm just wondering, uh, you know, if you can kind of compare this because you've done work in China mm. on the situation there and... You know, it'd be interesting to just ask you to kind of compare there because, uh, you know, I gather the situations, well, the situations in which you've worked, you've worked with ethnic minority groups that are, I mean, we call them minorities, they're very, very big groups, hmm. uh, of course, in China. So can you, can you kind of contrast that relationship, the, the relation between, you know, uh, what you've just described for Australia and English in, in relation to indigenous mm. languages of which there are very many. Um, you know, compare that to the China situation where you've got this incredibly powerful government that is very committed to 
language standardization, uh, but in the context of, of a very diverse and very large uh, number of ethnic populations. As your question perhaps foreshadows, there's a great tension between that push to language standardization in China and that multiplicity or that diversity of minority, as we call them, languages. Historically, for many millennia, actually, China has standardised from the imperial court its language. So prior to the current um, People's Republic of China, in which Putonghua is the state-backed standard language of a variety of Mandarin, there were other varieties of Mandarin that were pushed by the state as the standard, Guoyu and others. In the mid-20th century, in the lead-up to the formation of the People's Republic of China, listeners may be aware there was a great deal of political tumult and a civil war in China after the um, prior overthrow of the imperial dynasty. And at that time, in that context, it was very important for the incoming Communist Party to assert their leadership and their, not their formal authority, but their legitimacy to govern these people by very directly, with the force of law, recognising a great many minority people. And this was also in line with the communist ideology of, if you like, a communal purpose, a, a commune that transcends races and nations towards a common utopic goal. And so at first the Common Program, which then became the first constitution of China, recognised the right to use and develop minority languages. So that was in 1949. Then through the early 1950s, with a great level of haste and a great level of financial backing from the um, central government, there was a big linguistic, anthropological, ethnographic and bureaucratic process to decide, well, what were those minority languages? Who are these particular people? To recognise them by name. And so that is the process which resulted then in 55 official minority language groups in China and one official majority language group who represent about 92% of the population. Of those um, 55 recognised minority language groups, almost all of them, really bar one, are recognised as having a specific official minority language. And then the state throughout the, if you like, the, mm, the early part of the PRC, so the 1950s, just before the Cultural Revolution into the 60s, and then again after the Cultural Revolution into the 80s, the state then put a lot of money and resourcing into standardising each of those minority languages as well. So the one I've particularly worked on is called Zhuang, it's the language of the minority group that has the largest official population, some 17 million people. It's about 1% of the national population, which is big for a minority. In China, I mean, many things are big on the population scale, but there are still tiny minorities where just, you know, dozens or hundreds of people speak a language. But this is not one of them. So of these 17 million people, some estimates vary. Some 10 to 14 million people speak some level of Zhuang. Linguists sometimes argue that another language also recognised as the official language of a different minority group in China called Bui is a variety of Zhuang too. So if we added in those speakers, it would be another two to three million people speaking 
some variety of this language. And then this language is also spoken by official minorities in the northern part of Vietnam as well, but in other dialectal varieties. So the scale, of course, is... is I mean, there's, there's many, many differences, of course, between Australia and China in these respects, but scale is, you know, obviously one of them. And when you're looking at the relationship between, uh, you know, the dominant lawmaking culture and the minorities that are speaking different languages, the uh, scale's off the charts. 20 million Zhuang speakers versus... Um, you know, in, in, in Aboriginal Australia, you know, your the languages that are regarded as being quite vital relative to others are mostly spoken by around a thousand people or, or fewer than that. So yeah, it's really another kind of world. If if we can come back to the Australian case mm. and and that the fact that, you know, there isn't an official language, English, in Australia, it, I'd be interested to know more about w the legality or the legal kind of context of the uses that we've seen of Aboriginal languages in parliamentary proceedings. You know, you mentioned earlier that um, they've begun to be used either symbolically or for practical purposes in mm. government settings. So can you say something about what are the contexts of usage and what whether they're they're raising any kind of legal challenges? Sure. Look, they do raise legal challenges, but those legal challenges are for each parliament to resolve itself. So it's not a federal matter. It's for each state or territory parliament. Or if, it, if you want to speak those languages in the federal parliament, then it's a matter for the federal parliamentary rules. And so, for example, a couple of years ago now, I think 2016, a parliamentarian elected to the Northern Territory uh, Parliament, Bess Price MP, wished to use her Indigenous language in the context of doing her work within the debate in Parliament. And she was not allowed under the procedural rules of that Parliament. However, since then there has been debate and change to those rules in the Northern Territory. So more recently another Indigenous Member of Parliament in the Northern Territory was permitted to use his language in parliamentary proceedings. So that's how that kind of legal debate is resolved. It's a, it's a specific matter for the rules of that parliament. So in those contexts, have there been translators or interpreters uh, playing a role, therefore, uh, presumably that not, not all people in the, that chamber speak that language? Um, you know, you have a very much more symmetrical situation in a place like um, Canada where, mm. you know, you've people either know the languages or there's kind of simultaneous uh, interpreting happening. How is that dealt with? Yeah, it's certainly not dealt with by the, the large-scale simultaneous interpreting that you see in, as you say, Canada or in international um, congresses. In the specific case of the Northern Territory, I believe the Member of Parliament himself also then presented the material in English. I see. Yeah, so that's a great case. I think you know, it's a fascinating case and very powerful symbolically. It would be also really interesting to look at, you know, comparing to the, the case where we were talking about Arabic and English, thinking about matters of expression and expressibility. Um, you know, I'm sure that's, that's, a, that's a major topic we could get into. Um, but what I want to do instead of getting into that is to move 
forward to what you're doing at the moment mm. and you know what's relative what's relevant to the great topic of the day the global pandemic covid-19 so you're currently working and writing on the topic of Australian government communications in languages other than English with the public about COVID-19. So could you tell us about that project and what's going on with Australian government communications in, in languages other than English? Sure. So as I mentioned before, at the law school here for a couple of years, I've been looking more generally at the language of government's communications to the public and the decision-making framework around those language choices. And I had found in general that there was very little legal guidance to that decision-making framework and in fact also not that much policy guidance. When the pandemic hit Australia, I was in Switzerland on a fellowship and had to abort that and rush home. But the silver lining is that it's a wonderful case study to look in more detail at government communications in languages other than English at a time when people other than myself also believe it to be important. Because finally people can understand from the real world context why there is a collective interest in making sure every Australian can understand what the government is trying to inform them of. Both so that we can collectively manage risks or follow the rules together, but also so every person has the autonomy to manage their anxiety, to make decisions about what they are and are not comfortable with because they know the up-to-date, locally specific information on the pandemic conditions. And so what I at first did was to do field work, to go out to Sydney suburbs. I live in Sydney and obviously I wasn't allowed to travel beyond that during, uh, during the first phase of the pandemic. I went to Sydney suburbs that had double or triple the national rate of households speaking a language other than English. So suburbs like Burwood in inner western Sydney where the rate is 76%. And I wanted to see in the, the communal hubs of those neighbourhoods, so around the train station, the main shopping street, that sort of area, what sort of public signage specifically about the pandemic was up for display where did it come from? So was it official government signage that you can download from government websites? Or was it handmade or made by someone else? And what languages was it in? I also then did online fieldwork looking at federal government, federal Department of Health, New South Wales Department of Health and an agency called Multicultural Health Communications Service, New South Wales, to look at websites and Twitter feeds to see also what language choices they were making and how they were or we're not reaching out to um, people who don't read English particularly. What I found overall was that there was real inconsistency. So that there's an occasional use of a tweet in Arabic or a tweet in Tagalog or a tweet in Mandarin, but the Twitter feed is overall in English. The websites, for example, are entirely in English some of these websites that I studied make it quite easy to find where there are materials in other languages. Some of them make it incredibly hard. In fact, the New South Wales Department of Health website did not come up well in my analysis. It's very impenetrable. It relies on an incredibly high level of English literacy, but it also relies on people just knowing 
to expect that if they dig somewhere, there will be material in another language. And you have to ask, well, why would people expect that that language material is even there and go looking for it if they have no pre-existing or ongoing communicative relationship with their government because their government doesn't reach out to them in ways they understand in media channels that they use. So I found, you know, there were these indications with the online media that perhaps communications in languages other than English about the pandemic were not very effective. And then the fieldwork triangulated against that to show, indeed, there was a very, very low display of the government signage, and in particular, very low display of the government signage produced in the locally common languages. So, for instance, in Burwood and in Strathfield, the suburb we were talking about before, which I went back to as well, here we have, I think, 72 and 76% of people speaking a language other than English in their households, and the most common languages are Mandarin, Korean, and then also Cantonese and Japanese in those areas. I did not find high instances of the government produced official reliable messaging in those languages on display in the shops and yet I found other signage in those languages indicating that those shops do regularly speak to those customers in those other languages and so that's an indication again that something is missing here. The government does not seem to be getting its message to the right people in the right places and then Quite apart from my research, we saw media coverage of community groups who work with multilingual communities raising really similar concerns. So, yeah, I mean, I saw, for example, in areas where, um, you, you know, where I go, so in the, in the city in the Haymarket, in um, an area of there that's sometimes referred to as Thai town, where there's mm. a lot of Thai-speaking uh, shops and so on, you know, there's signage there that's kind of handwritten, stuff on the wall um, and certainly was a great involvement at a certain point with the community you know shop owners and the community kind of bringing people together in various ways getting out food to to students who you know had lost their incomes or couldn't pay their rent or whatever so that you know I I could see a a kind of a community engagement within that language community I wasn't studying the signage Mm -hmm. or trying to evaluate it Um, but I did notice it so I'm interested and whether you could comment on th- what that kind of homemade signage was doing and whether, you know, I suppose if you were uh, s- a state government uh, health communicator and you were acknowledging that, you know, you hadn't produced the m- right amount of signage in these other languages, you would be interested to know if the, the, the homemade signage was putting across the right message. So did you get a sense of whether the signage that you did see that was kind of produced by the community itself was on message or were there sort of issues around that? It seemed to be on message, particularly signage that was, we might say grassroots, but not homemade, not handwritten, but somebody other than the local or state government had spent money producing their own campaign or their own you know set of materials so for instance local uh, shopping center management like arcade management that sort of thing might have spent some money making quite professional signage with the messages that we know are important stay 1.5 meters away wash your hands etc so it's not necessarily that that signage is 
absent or that people who can't read English well don't have any idea. It's just that the government is not leveraging those language networks or community networks to get its message across, Mm. which is an inefficiency because it has produced materials. It's spent money producing materials that then no one is using. But the further problem is that beyond those very simple messages, there's a lot more complex information about ever-changing rules, ever-changing risk profiles that people often want to know the detail of in order to manage their own situation and their own family during the pandemic. And I'm particularly concerned that that level of detail is not accessible to people who speak a language other than English or in particular people who rely on another language to read because the government has not seemingly done very well to connect to language networks to get that more complex information across. So that's a huge challenge I can imagine for a government when you're in a city that has, I don't know how many hundred different languages being spoken, you know, within Greater Sydney, it's, it's a huge number. Um, and as you say, you know, there are these huge communities speaking, um, you know, Mandarin or, or the other languages you mentioned, um, and it would taper off, but still you would have a ton of languages, like really a long list, where you would want to see that kind of detailed information being being put through. So what, what do you see as the issue there? Is there a limit in terms of, you know, just the resources that I mean, how do you deal with the with the resource problem you know from the government's point of view if I was the premier of New South Wales and I'm talking to you about this and I say well what, what do I do how, how, I can't do it for every language you know let's say there's 300 languages mm-hmm. spoken in the community I can't do it for all of those what do I do there's two things I would say after I had said that yes that is of course a very important question one is well then don't waste money If money is scarce, then spend it efficiently. Do the research before we get to a pandemic to work out how to reach these people. What scripts, what tone of language, but most importantly, what mode of media are different language groups relying on? What are they accessing? It would seem that densely written fact sheets buried on a government website is not, as it turns out, the resource that people go to out of habit or during a crisis. So that's the first point. Don't waste money, spend it efficiently and do the research and planning first to make that efficient. And the second thing is, of course, the government doesn't have to do it all by itself out of its own budget. There are community networks here. As you mentioned, the Thai community, all sorts of community networks in every city who are more than willing to assist the government to help this messaging get around. They, in fact, are in the media asking to be contacted asking to be brought to the table and made useful. Essentially, that is volunteer labour. Now, in an ideal world, perhaps the government would have ample funding and not have to rely on that, but as it is, and particularly during a crisis when everyone's pulling together, let people pull together and work with them. But for either of those two things that I've suggested, being more efficient and using community networks better, to really work during a crisis... We need to step back and make sure that we know how to do that before a crisis. So, for instance, Professor Ingrid Piller, an applied linguist at Macquarie, recently wrote in an international pamphlet from de Gruyter of social scientists commenting on uh, the global pandemic that in the middle of the pandemic, it's impossible 
to suddenly come up with a communications plan or to get all your um, messaging right in every language. That needs to be an issue that governments consider beforehand and plan for. So, um, yeah, maybe you should be working for the state government would be very useful for all of us. I uh, am trying. <laughs> I mean, not to work for them, but to work with them. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to ask, you know, now just about one uh, other aspect of the kind of communications around mm. COVID-19 at the moment and, you know, uh, perhaps going back a little bit to questions around exclusion, uh, translation. So, you know, one of the things we've just been talking about is making sure that information gets to the, the population, it gets to the communities, and, you know, that it's information of a certain kind, information in a certain form. And the flip side of that is that there's certain information that you don't want being circulated. Uh, so, of course, you know, there's quite a lot of media attention at the moment on conspiracy theories about what COVID-19 is. People have, you know, ideas about what essentially conspiracy theory stuff, which relates to, uh, which I think many people would agree is dangerous mm. in terms of what it's trying to advise people to do. It, it, it advises people not to wear masks. It advises people to eschew the idea of, um, you know, a vaccine if, if and when one becomes available. All this kind of stuff that you really wouldn't want spreading in the community and, you know, of course, people are quite concerned with the spread of all of those ideas in English through Facebook and all of that. Um, but of course, presumably, if it's there in English, it's there in the other languages too. So, is there a sort of a, you know, we would be focusing on the good <laughs> mm. uh, and trying to boost the good. You know, is there an issue here with with languages other than English? in terms of trying to limit the bad and trying to kind of keep a lid on and monitor and know about, you know, uh, the kind of information getting into the community that you don't want? Yes, I think there certainly is. Look, what small studies, for instance, uh, CoHealth, which is a, a non, uh, non-government organisation that works in the health and community space in Melbourne, found early in the pandemic in a study of their own, was that people who can't access the English medium, media, so that is government media written in English about the pandemic, were turning to social networks, as you might imagine, social media. What we also know is that the head of the World Health Organization has come out very clearly and said it's an infodemic. There's all sorts of, as you've put it, kind of bad or conspiratorial information circulating. That circulates particularly through social media. That sort of unreliable information is what people perhaps have to turn to when they can't access reliable information from their own government. Of course, not all social media is specious, but essentially what the government is doing by failing to engage people in the correct messaging, it's forcing them to turn to other sources that are not necessarily as reliable. And that is, if you like, amplifying the the problem with conspiratorial or bad information. There's also a problem here of people who are not trying to be malicious or spread conspiracies, but simply spreading the information from their home country to people in Australia, because people in Australia are turning to people from a fellow language community across borders to get information. And the problem there is you get information that's 
not accurate for the situation in Australia. So, for instance, the issue of mask wearing early in the pandemic in Australia, our government was saying, particularly in English language media, don't wear masks all the time, we don't have enough as a nation, they'll run out, we don't need them for everything. These are other things that you can do to protect yourself. That message is changing, as we know right now in Melbourne. But early in the pandemic, that was the message. But at the same time, the message in China, where the situation was far graver, was wear a mask all the time. And so people who, for instance, were accessing Mandarin language, social media, to get information and detail on how to deal with the pandemic, because it was their preference or because they couldn't access the English language media, were then hearing, well, I have to wear a mask, that's not only confusing, but it creates a level of distrust, I think, where people think, well, these other Australians are not pulling their weight. They're not making an effort. The Australian government is just being irresponsible here and not getting people to wear masks. And that level of distrust, that rupture, then has really serious implications when the government wants to give other information and you know, continue to be a source of reliable information if people have already decided, well, you know, they don't seem to be saying the right thing. They seem to be out of kilter. Mm. And that problem, I think, particularly arises when people are getting information from a language network that spans borders. And so that information is about other contexts. So we... I'd just like to finish now, mm. just in given time. Um, and, you know, it's such a fascinating topic that where it would be a fascinating topic at any time but right now we're in the thick of it um everybody's affected by it we all want this problem to be solved we all want you know to see things going in the right direction um just to finish up in terms of language Mm. and this question of language choices around messaging to do with COVID-19 you know we're 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 clearly not through this crisis what do you think is the answer to solving the kinds of problems that you've just been suggesting. You know, you've got the pressures on the government to be sensible and to be efficient and to do the right thing with their messaging. You've got a competition against this, you know, incredible tsunami of language information coming from around the world on the internet. Um, you know, what, what, what do you think is going to be the right direction to take to, to, to keep things going the right way? I have to say I have been impressed that particularly state governments have improved their use of information and languages other than English, particularly in Victoria, in response to the problems as they arise. So I would certainly encourage governments in the midst of the pandemic to keep being responsive and to improve things, to listen when the community says things are not working. But looking forward to a more robust solution. What my research prior to the pandemic and during the pandemic is really showing is that there is a lack of principle or structure to the decision-making. So when each government department decides to make communications about whatever the government wants to talk about, it's incredibly ad hoc and inconsistent. And that, I think, is where we need to focus for the solution. So that's a public policy solution that I'm advocating, and that policy solution may need to be backed up with concrete laws that force certain questions to be asked, that force certain monitoring of communications to be done. I don't mean monitoring, you know, whether you, Nick, read a particular text message from the government, but whether the messaging strategy in general is working. Now, the detail of that 
public policy response. Of course, is not something that I, all by my lonesome, should suggest. That's why I've been really trying to get to the point where we can have experts, government stakeholders from communications teams, government stakeholders from public health teams, people such as the Sydney University Public Health Literacy Lab and community members and community organisations coming together to design public policy in this space. Basically, this is an area that we haven't previously thought really needed attention, really needed a framework, really needed a public policy response. And so, to boil it down to a nutshell, what I'm saying is the solution is to bring that question to the fore, to ask the language question, if you like, and to ask it every time the government makes a communication. Well, I look forward to seeing how this all plays out and particularly to seeing how your research develops on this topic. It's been fascinating to hear all about it and I wish you the best of luck with it. Alex Craig, thank you very much for talking to us today. Absolutely, my pleasure.